Morning, Stanton. I want to talk today about a concept, a therapeutic concept called motivational interviewing, where, um, you know, as a therapist, there's, there are almost memes about this kind of a thing where uh, someone who might be called a shrink is answering someone's problems and they say, well, what do you think's going on with me? And the shrink says, well, what do you think's going on with you? Motivational interviewing is a actual real life concept of that. It draws out a person's true motivations and interests and helps people reflect on the words that they're saying. So it's like a mirror to them so they can actually assemble those words and thoughts into something constructive in their lives. So uh, sometimes people come with so much competing for their attention that it's hard to streamline all of those things into an approach that works in the context of their lives. That's motivational interviewing. Recently, I used motivational interviewing. That's pretty much my go-to. But I think before I knew what it was called, that's what I tried to do, you know, reflect back to people what they're saying to me in a humane way and try to get them to uh, disentangle any points of cognitive dissonance that they may have. Let me, let me just throw in, uh, associated with the name of the psychologist, William Miller. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, <clears throat> it's as opposed to both AA, where you're given a list of things to do, and to, you know, uh, other kinds of therapy, which are either more directive or a psychoanalytic therapy where there's sort of a correct answer and you're guiding the person. Oh, we've got to find out the kernel, the trauma that's causing your problem. Motivational interviewing puts the ball back in the court of the person who's going to live their own life to make sense out of their lives in a way that they're going to be able to carry forward. And the bottom line that Miller always, you know, he makes a list of what motivational interviewing is. The last item on the list is always in psychology talk, Mm self-efficacy. Because the idea is if you've gone through the exercise of clarifying in your own mind um, what the problem is, how you see it, and where it fits in in your life and what resources you have for dealing with it, it's you. You own everything. And that's the bottom line definition of self-efficacy. I can think of an example off the top of my head where somebody was telling me that, that I have a real issue with my mother. It's family dynamics, but it's mostly my mother. And she was rough to me when I was growing up. And I still, I don't know if I really forgive her for a lot of things that she did to me. Yet, you know, I'm she's part of my life anyway. I see her at Thanksgiving dinners. I see her when we bring our children to see her. And uh, it's a point of contention. So you could imagine like an AA sort of way of thinking or an instructive way of thinking to say, here's what you need to do. All right. So you need to tell your mom. So that's, that would be one way, whatever the advice is. And you could imagine the psychoanalytic version. And then that could get messy real quick. Okay. So you need to deal with the the deep rooted trauma that you have ideas about your mother through childhood. And let's, let's tackle those forever. And that's an, that might be a caricature, but maybe not in some cases. Motivational interviewing would be something more like asking the person, so you had turbulence in your childhood associated with your mom, yet your mom's still an important part of your life. And then you choose to go see her, you choose to spend time with her. She is your mother. So why is it important to you that you continue a relationship with her? Um, And, and, you know, you might eventually get to the point where you're saying, so how can you reconcile the idea that there were difficulties in the past with who she is now and what you appreciate about her now? Or there, you could go in this directions with that, depending on what the person's saying. So it's a more um, 
right. You say that it's a way that promotes self-agency it promotes um, dealing with an issue head on and being realistic about it. And the individual gets to decide, are there things I just want to forget about and toss away? Are there things that I actually want to deal with? So it's an interesting approach. Now, you I'm, have... You throw in, you picked an interesting issue. As I watch Netflix at all, it's <laughs> unbelievable how people's mothers are pretty important. We've talked about yeah. Quinta Benson, Bunsen's got a best-selling TV network show now called Abbott Elementary about a school in West Philadelphia. And she wrote of She Memes Well, which was a best-selling... I mean, she's a cultural phenomenon. And <clears throat> there's some pretty heavy stuff there in her memoir, She Memes Well. I mean, her mother was down on her. Her mother was a very religious Jehovah's Witnesses, Witness. Her mother was down on her at the same time that she appreciated her. And Quinta Bunsen had to come to grips with that, which he does in the book. And she talks to her mother regularly. Um, they avoid a number of subjects. Let's just say um, Quinta Bunsen's sex life and drug use are, would be two examples. Um, <clears throat> but the book is a natural recovery case of addiction to love. We'll have, we'll, we've talked about that somewhat, um, a love addiction. But it's a making peace with your mother um, book. And, you know, the bottom line is it's, a, it's sort of almost eerie. Uh, Abbott Elementary is set in West Philadelphia. Quentin Munson doesn't live in West West Philadelphia anymore, and she's never been a teacher. Her mother is a teacher in West Philadelphia. She's made a a winning TV network show, which bespeaks her cultural orientation. Quentin Munson, you might say she's a little conceited. In an interview, she said, I'm the only person I've seen who's created a network television show that represents a kind of the millennial and generation X way of thinking. Nobody else has done it. She even puts down. um, What's that soccer coach that everybody loves? She puts that down a little. What's that called? The um, The show. Are you talking about the the show, a soccer coach in a show? Ted Lasso. Yeah. Yeah. Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso. Yeah. And in the interview in the Times, this you and I had a love. She puts down the second season of Ted Lasso in the interviewer says, oh, did you hate the part where Ted Lasso explained why he was a nice guy? <laughs> father committed suicide. She says, oh, yeah, I'll never do that. God bless Quinta Bunsen. And, you know, um, just one other thing that I can't believe I'm watching um, the HBO series on um, Julia Child. And Julia Child's father doesn't like her because he's like a big businessman and Julia Child's Julia Child. <laughs> he doesn't, you know, she's a European file. 
And her father thought she'd never make a cent. Of course, she became, I don't know, she became a billionaire. She certainly commanded a lot of resources. And every interaction with them is a put down. It's, 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 you know, I'm just watching Julie Child. Oh, this is interesting. It's painful to see their interactions. Mm. And when, she, when he leaves after a visit, she goes, uh, well, this has been a wonderful, really wonderful visit. You know, I really, and in the same way that Clinton Bunsen gets down to a point, she says, I know I'm not disappointed you in many ways, but I, Ironically, I'm actually running a business like you did. <laughs> and, um, you know, um, I've gotten a lot from you, which is Quentin Bunsen could have said exactly the same thing. And I love you, you know, and you know, it's sort of a psychodrama. But, uh, you know, people's dealings with their mothers. They're major and uh, people have to make peace with them. So motivational interviewing is a. Uh is a way of allowing a person to self-direct themselves towards a balanced view of both the, of their past, their present, and, you know, maybe an optimistic future, or at least a constructive one. So you don't have, you don't hold too much weight on things that you can't control. And you do that, the, the client, the person on the other end of motivational interviewing does that in a way that they can tolerate, you know, they have the actual emotional and intellectual bandwidth to make sense of and tolerate it's on their terms you have a way of you have a trick that falls i guess under the umbrella of motivational interviewing which and i appreciate the alliteration you call motivational misdirection and uh, i i mean you kind of just came up with that but um and i've recently pulled that trick for various reasons you know i i, I have thought about it i'll explain it I have thought about it before as a little bit of trickery, like, oh, this kind of feels nearly like unethical, like I shouldn't be walking them into a trap. But it's, uh, it's become very useful. For instance, a lot of people who come to our program have a problem with alcohol or drugs or something else. And many of them have quit smoking in the past. And they think of that as like, yeah, I quit smoking, but can't we talk about the, my heroin addiction? But if you get down to, well, what was it? how did you quit smoking? I mean, that's a tough one. And then they talk about how they quit smoking. They soon see easily the parallels between their difficulties with smoking versus their difficulties with whatever it is, a drug like heroin or, um, or drinking or some other sort of process in their lives that they're wedded to. So uh, I use that a lot. And I think about when the best times are to use it. And it's usually like as a last resort secret weapon, almost like, well, how do we really rearrange the way that you're thinking about this? Um, so if you don't mind, I'll just give a case study. I'm going to, I'm going to change a little bit of information. It's kind of fresh. Okay. But there is a person who, it's a woman and she's very well to do and has, has had issues drinking and she can't understand why she even seeks alcohol. What, what sensation she's seeking from drinking? She drinks enough and it causes enough distress in her life that it's a problem for sure. She, she gets that. But, but the question that we ask every one of our clients, uh, one of a series of questions is, what sensations are you seeking when you're using this thing or when you're involved with this thing? And she had no answer for it. And, you know, my first reaction to that is usually that person maybe didn't understand the question. 
So I tried to, which she had no answers for it. I tried to say, other people have had some success answering the question, if this thing were to become a problem in the future, what are the elements that might make it a problem? You know, what environment are you going to be in? And who are you going to be with? What time of day? So that's a way of like putting a future orientation to it that maybe people can make sense of since it's not right now. Oftentimes people in right now don't have the problem. They're in some sort of, you might call it a remission from their cycle. So they have a hard time thinking about it. Well, she still said, I have no idea. I mean, I, she, she said, I can't answer a future oriented question if I don't even know what I would be seeking right now or have been seeking in the past. Hmm. I'm thinking this is, this is tricky. And I wondered if this person was kind of holding out and that's her right to do. But I wondered if she was holding out when she, and she thought she needed to hold out on me when she didn't really need to, because I'm not going to be judgmental. So I had to think about how I was going to handle this question and so even though my knee jerk was to believe, all right, she's withholding something from me and I don't want to put her in a position where I'm trying to call her out for being sneaky. I thought, well, if I'm going to actually give her the benefit of the doubt, maybe the, the, maybe there's like a temperamental aspect to this. Maybe the language doesn't offer itself to a, a way of thinking that she's familiar with. So I asked her about something else that I knew was important to her, her husband. Now this this goes back to you in a couple ways. One, it's invoking the idea of love and trying to translate between love in general, whether the love is secure and attached and constructive or whether it's a fantasy of love that's gone awry, which would be an addiction. I'm also using this sort of uh, motivational misdirect here. So I asked, I said, why don't we just change the topic? Um, you talked about your husband what is it about you that you love about your husband? You know what? Oh, I, sorry. I'm sorry. This is sloppy now, but I should mention part of the issue was that she was hiding this thing from her husband. So to me, I'm thinking, well, you don't like it enough to hide it from your husband. So I did ask her that question too. You know, what is it about alcohol? Do you enjoy so much that you would, um, you kind of junk your, your bond with your husband, your truth bond with your husband to do it. She didn't know either. Okay, so now I wanted to switch and talk about her husband. What is it that you love about your husband? And her answers, I don't know if I'll remember them all off the top of my head, but they're very transactional. Like he's, um, he's there on time. You know, he's, he's a good part. We split tasks. And I'm thinking, is this the most like straightforwardly conscientious person I've ever talked to in my life? Everything is sort of like in a planner for this person, even, even her relationships. So I thought, well, if that's really, if she really loves her husband and their husband's important to her and that's a relationship with him, but she might not even understand if I asked, what are you seeking in your love relationship? And to an extent, she couldn't answer that really. She just sort of like, well, why, why does anyone have a husband? He's a father. I needed to marry someone so I could have kids. And then he's a father and he keeps his commitments and we're a good pair. It's like a business transaction. So I asked her sort of business transaction oriented questions about alcohol and um, I don't need to. Anyway, I brought that, I brought that dimension of her life to alcohol. And when I asked her more pointed questions about um, how does alcohol serve you? Um, what is alcohol? What is the benefit of alcohol? And let's think about like a, a, a given day for you. Where does that fit in that it has some sort of, um, 
that it helps the schedule of your day or positively influences the tasks that you need to handle. And she was able, she generally. You would naturally lead into a discussion of where it prevents those things from happening. Yeah, right. Elicited from her are the keystones to her life. Absolutely. That's where we want to get to. But still, if you remember, I'm still trying to get her to answer the question, what are you seeking from this thing? And so then this is my long approach to, and you know, the whole thing for her was this is a fluid discussion. Like this is productive. It's when glad we're talking. And so it was a good learning lesson for me that people don't all speak in the same, I guess, emotional language. And so I needed to reframe what I was trying to ask in a way that made sense to her in her world. That's not a, her doing something wrong. It's me trying to communicate and have some sort of a connection with this person so that she could answer. And she generated a million answers and the question finally clicked for her. And so that will inform the way that I speak to her and she might speak to me going forward. So, uh, uh, it's fascinating, your whole description. I mean, our job is not to make people more insightful about life and more psychoanalytic. There's some people mm-hmm. that's maybe many or mo- by far most people that they don't analyze their own lives and their own behavior. Um, they're operating on a different plane. And a- apropos of self-efficacy and motivational interviewing, that's the plane they live their lives on. That's the plane they're going to have to deal with. And so you want to operate on that plane. You don't, you know, <clears throat> it's amazing how often when Chris Rock describes how great his therapy was, he was a small kid and he got beat up a lot. And so one day he put a brick in a bag and he hit somebody with it. It could have been way negative reactions to that and so the therapist said well that's why you've been afraid ever since then to assert yourself because you see asserting yourself as being putting that brick in the bag and hitting somebody so it's a whole long way around explaining how Chris Rock deals with the world but there are a lot of people who deal with the world in the present looking at him without confronting issues Mm -hmm. and the question is, what kind of life skills is he going to need to deal with that situation? That's the level at which we deal with things. And we, we get to that place by saying, you know, well, what problems do you experience in dealing with other people? Well, you know, I'm not assertive enough. And operating out of their kind of a framework. And the misdirection approach is, if they're having trouble dealing with it in one sphere let's pump it over in a way that almost seems like what's he talking about now or how accidental is that Mm -hmm. that he's pointing out that's why i call it misdirection uh she's talking about her drinking and all of a sudden you say well let's talk about your husband although you know she hasn't told her husband about her drinking concerns so that you know has occurred to you already but what you're saying is well let's deal with an important area of your life that you've come to grips with and you have a satisfactory way of dealing with it. Let's look at that framework. You gave the example of people who've come to you because they want to whatever deal with drinking or heroin or opioids, and they've already quit smoking. Um, that, uh, that's a special example. And you say, well, let's talk about your quitting smoking. And they say, screw that. I, I'm here to do all this. <laughs> and, 
you know, somebody can say, why are we talking about my husband? You know, I'm here for a drinking problem. But you're trying to put it in a sphere where they have a clearer vision of how they proceed step by step in that area where they've had some success and, you know, very possibly some problems. I mean, you could say, you know, what was the biggest blow up you ever had with your husband? Where did that come from? You know, why was there this big misunderstanding? Because you generally get along very well and you value getting along very well. So you're putting it in an area where it's less contagious, less radioactive, and you're getting to go through a thought process. That same thought process is the one you're hoping to get them to go through in the addictive behavior area. Of course, motivational interviewing in general is about also, you know, getting people to open up and think about things maybe differently or restructure the way they're thinking and letting them do it on their terms. It's also about helping them connect the dots when there are some sort of parallel or analogous situations or, or philosophies. And the way that I've always thought about that is it needs to, if there are two concepts that a person is struggling over, you need to keep those kind of contained so that you don't go too far afield. But what I'm learning and with help from you and some of, you know, I still read your past work sometimes if I get stuck and to help inform me, it doesn't matter how far away you get from what seems to be the topic. If you're talking about a person's life and how they deal with life, you're now speaking their language. You're connected in a way that helps serve you, the clinician or the coach or the counselor so that you can be more instructive and helpful and speak to the person no matter in any other area in a way that actually makes sense to them. And I think that's a, an enormous benefit. And you, it doesn't matter. You can't get too so far away that you'll never connect the dots. Maybe the two concepts won't intersect in that person's mind, but at least they have in yours. And so that you, that, that uh, inspires so the way. That's really, I mean, they do have the term paradoxical uh, foray in motivation mm-hmm. interviewing where they'll say, Oh, so you'll never quit smoking. And then the person says, wait a second, I didn't say that. Right. But we're, our paradox is, <laughs> let's, we're supposed to be talking about X. That's what they're paying to talk about. Let's jump, not, I mean, we're not coming up with the farthest thing that we've ever thought of, but let's come up with something that even to us seems like it's in a different ballpark. But it is something that's in their lives that they're concerned about. And let's, play ball in that ballpark and see where we get to. Right. So it's the misdirection. It's the paradox. Um, and as a therapist, what, or a helper or a coach, what we're asking you to do is, is there something else about this person, some other area of their life that's important to them? That's noteworthy. I don't know exactly where I'm going. Let's talk about that. You know, that actually lends itself easily into the work that I do on a daily basis with kids and then with their teachers or with their parents. If I see a kid who's struggling to sit down for 80 minutes in a math class or put the math concepts together or writing or whatever it is, and then, you know, the idea is the kid has this deficit, I always am concerned that what else about this kid? What else is there about this kid? Because I don't want him spewing back the language, oh, I'm defective, I'm defective, I'm defective. That's going to become self-fulfilling. If I see that same kid is a tremendous athlete or is creative and is an artist or something else, I always try to rope in, look at these skills that you have in all of these areas. 
how can we, whether I'm talking to me and a teacher or me and the child, how can we rope in these skills that are transferable through life into the classroom where obviously you're having a hard time? Let's focus on that. And so I think that may have come a little bit more naturally for me in being able to do, but I, I do hope that, you know, that can be a way of thinking for all people who are helpers. I think that the fact that yours aided in doing your work from coming from a developmental spe- and a school specialty, because it's, we seem to lose that recognition with older adults. Well, with a kid, you're all, you, it's more natural to say, well, he's down on himself or he's obviously, or she's having a problem, but, you know, let's look at their strength-based um, fortitude you know, and their skills, let's, that, that's a more natural process. And somehow we lose that in transitioning from working with children to working with adults, but it's remarkable how often it applies there as well. Well, here's another example of that too. And then um, I can let you have the last word if you'd like. There's a, um, I work with a person who I really admire. He's, his way of thinking is similar to yours and mine and who works with kids. And he was really upset the other day because a child in second grade actually said to him, I used to love school, but now I think it's the worst place ever. And so that struck him that that informed the way that he wanted to work with the kid. Like this kid was in um, some sort of extreme distress that needed to be pulled out of. And that's alarming. You know, you hate to hear a kid say, I used to love this place. Now it sucks. But then I started working with the kid and I realized that he just kind of talks like that. This is the worst game ever. This is the worst. You're the worst person ever, but the same person, you know, you're not my best friend anymore, but then you're, he's hanging out with that person. So I use that same sort of concept. I guess you'd say that in a, in an opposite sort of way to allow people to express themselves, but you have to understand what it is that they're trying to express with the language that they're using which I think is also very interesting about this case that I'm still learning from with the LPP client. Um, so I was able to help inform this guy, you know, I think that you're making this an emergency in your mind, but even though we don't want someone to hate school, you might take with a grain of salt or try to understand what it is he's saying when he says those words. It's um, his mode of discourse. You know, right. he relates the world by pointing out negative things about it you may not be able to change that where that's coming from. Right. But you want to calm down. Well, I just want to summarize our little discussion and all of our discussions. Um, If people were to watch you and me interact and what we talk about, they might say, well, they're just talking about people or dealing with people or how people think in the most common sense, daily ways. They don't talk about trauma they don't talk about labeling. They they never use terms out of DSM. You know, you'll never hear OCD out of their lips. Um, you, you never even hear trauma out of their lips. And in fact, you never hear about addiction really out of our lips. You know, we don't say, oh, let's talk about drugs and what opioids do. We're removing the conversation to the level of human functioning. And that's the most... and. Getting back to the, a lot of people put the DSM down. I don't actually. Um, they're talking about human functioning as the fundamental. Even in DSM, even with schizophrenia, 
it's sort of okay if you have hallucinations. If that's your way of dealing with life, the question is, you know, are you able to hold a job and keep relationships? That's the question. And so that's why the Life Process Program is addressed, uh, focuses on those things, and why in our little Sunday morning chats, you and I, uh, these are the things that we discuss. I appreciate you bringing it back to LPP. Sometimes we have these discussions and they're fascinating. And uh, I forget that there's a there's a an audience member out there watching and perhaps not not knowing where it is that we're coming from. So thank you again, Stanton. We talked today about motivational interviewing, a mode of therapy that encourages people's self-agency and to live their life and also to make sense of the issues in their lives. And your spin on that called motivational misdirection, which helps people think about, you know, different areas of their lives where they use their own skills and agency to get past a problem and how it might translate. And we want it, we want people to know that that's how we operate in the life process program. Nothing's too crazy a concept for us to tackle if we just use common sense terms and are humane enough to understand that people have ways of looking at the world that are unique. Thanks for tying it all up so well in such a nice way, Zach. Really, uh, I appreciate that. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday.